0: All right, you'll find our text for this evening on pages 8 and 9, uh, and as I know these passages have been uh, kind of long, and, um, but we're going to press through, uh, and as we read tonight, I want you to kind of look at this in three scenes, uh, those few verses at the end of chapter 4. We covered these a little bit last week. Uh, I want you to picture there's a, a conversation happening between Mordecai uh, and his uh, younger cousin that he raised, Esther. That's conversation taking place in those last few verses. Uh, and then in those first eight verses of chapter five, you've got, um, you have Esther in front of Xerxes, the king, her husband. And then those last from verses nine to the end of chapter five is Haman with his, with his crew, with his entourage. So Mordecai and Esther, Esther and Xerxes, um, uh, Haman and his crew. All right, here we go. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. In front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that the, he, we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless... Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow... Also, I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. The word of the Lord. I read a quote this week. It says this, In politics, never retreat, never retract, and never admit a mistake. Let me say it again. In politics, never retreat, never retract, and never admit a mistake. Uh, I think almost all the politicians in our current climate, they've taken this quote to heart, haven't they? Uh, Regardless of party. Because admitting a mistake seems like a really poor move as a leader, doesn't it? Well, that quote came from Napoleon, not Napoleon Dynamite, my personal doppelganger, (laughs) but Napoleon Bonaparte, you know, the uh, emperor of France, uh, 1804 to 1814, and under his rule, when it peaked in 1812, you had the French empire cover most of Western continental Europe. That's quite the expansion. That's quite the power. It must have taken quite the leader for that to happen. Well, I know Napoleon Bonaparte, he's known for being this small man and he's infamous for the inferiority complex that he had. It's given rise to the modern pop diagnosis of the Napoleon complex. That's because he's characterized by having this salty personality, someone you didn't want to get on the wrong side of. But he's also been described as the most competent human being who ever lived. He did accomplish a lot. See, this is leader number one. Then you've got leader number two. And I want to put forward a guy I didn't know of until this week, and his name's Jim Whitehurst. Now, Jim Whitehurst, if you don't know, he's the CEO of Red Hat, the CEO of a company in Red Hat. I've never heard of that either. But it's the source. uh, It's the largest open source ID company in the world. Red Hat was recently bought by IBM. Check this out. For $34 billion dollars. It's one of the largest uh, purchases of a private company ever. And Jim Whitehurst is the CEO of this company. So clearly, he's a leader. Clearly, he's been successful. And so he writes this leadership article for the Harvard Business Review. And it's called this, Be a Leader Who Can Admit Mistakes. So it caught my eye. I read it. At the very end of the article, he summarizes it with this. In short, admitting mistakes and saying you're sorry aren't liabilities. They are exactly the tools you can use to build your credibility and your authority to lead. Now, Napoleon would have a cow if you heard that, wouldn't he? He said that leaders should never never admit mistakes, whereas Jim Whitehurst, the CEO of one of the most well-respected tech companies in the world, says admitting mistakes is, is one of the essential practices of being a leader. So which is it? Now, we've just discussed two leaders. The title of my sermon, as you can see, is The Suffering Leaders. So obviously, we're discussing leadership. And maybe the term leader is not something that you self-identify with. You say, I'm an introvert. I, I don't influence others. I, I'm not a take charge kind of person. I don't have a position or a title that, 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 that communicates authority. I, I mean, I can sympathize with that. I mean, none of us in here, let's be honest, we're not Bill Gates. We're not Mother Teresa. We're not Colin Powell. But we're nonetheless, we're in positions of influence. So you don't need a title, nor do you need a certain personality in order to have influence. So it begs the question, if we're all leaders, how then should we lead? Well, Esther 5, what we just read, it it, it puts forward two very different paths of leadership for us. One's represented by Esther. Esther. The other is represented by Haman. You're going to see they both suffer, and it's for different reasons. Let's start with Esther. Esther, what she does in 4.15 is that she embraces weakness right at the very outset of her conversion. See, in 4.14, Mordecai challenges her. He challenges her to something that has not been true of her up to this point. All she's done up to this point is that she's been ascending to this powerful position as queen... And now because she's powerful, she now has the opportunity to choose weakness. And that's what her cousin Mordecai, who's also a Jew, encourages her to do. He encouraged her to, to, to march herself in before the king, King Xerxes, and to plead for the rescue of the Jews. See, the Jews, they, they had been ordered to be slaughtered because Mordecai, her cousin, who's a Jew, wouldn't bow down to Haman. And Haman was the king's right-hand man. Everyone was to bow down to Haman. And because Haman got prickly about this, he ordered not just that Mordecai would be slaughtered, but that all of Mordecai's people, all of the Jews throughout the empire, would be slaughtered as well. So Esther takes up this challenge to go before the king. But before she goes, she says that she's going to fast. Then she says that her maidservants are going to fast. Then she tells Mordecai to go tell all the Jews in the whole kingdom that they're going to fast too. When Esther's not fasting for guidance, she's already made a decision whether that she's going to go before the king. So then why does she fast? Is is she trying to coerce God into doing something that he needs to be pushed over the edge on? I think not. I think the reason that she fasts is that she's embracing this posture of becoming a weak leader. Here's the truth. We're all weak. You might not feel weak, but you are. And being weak is just being insufficient and inadequate. And since made us this way. We, we're disabled and we have these limitations. And if the awareness of our very weir- real weakness works its way into our hearts, we will become these humble, these self-distrusting people. Because we've got this realization of being helpless. And what better way to be awakened to the reality of our weakness than fasting? See, after Mordecai's challenge in chapter 4, verse 14, what we see, starting in verse 15, is this, all the way through verse 8 of chapter 5, is this gradual descent from the creature comforts of being queen into the land of pain and sorrow and grief that fasting sent us down into. See, it's in fasting that we get in touch with the pain of the world. It's in fasting that we get in touch with the ignored pain within our souls. See, go without food. Go without social media. Go without shopping. Go without alcohol. And they will cause you discomfort if that's what you're used to. And all of us are used to eating. Think about it. If you're used to scrolling through Instagram every time you've got a 15 second or longer pause in your life and then you quit doing it, it hurts. If you're used to having a nightcap every night before you go to bed, then you quit doing it, it hurts. If you give up food for three days, it's going to hurt. And because it hurts, it begins to raise your spiritual sensibilities that something's wrong in you. And something's wrong in the world. And that's what Esther does. See, she's been enveloped in this world of luxury. But she's also been enveloped in this real world of pain. And she's got this pain because she's not been willing to choose her identity as God's daughter, being a Jew. She hasn't made that very central in her life. And so she connects with this pain during these days, these three days. It's kind of like Jonah in the belly of the whale. Jonah became very aware during those three days in the belly of a whale that something was wrong with him and something was wrong with the world. Abraham. Abraham was told that he was going to sacrifice his son, his one and only son, Isaac. And he knew that for three days before he had to do it. What do you think those three days were like? They were very painful. So Esther's three-day fast, it comes right... Before she goes before the king, it's her preparation. Fasting is her preparation, but that doesn't make sense. You would think that she'd spend those three days trying to make herself as beautiful as possible. You'd think she'd spend those three days trying to get herself amped up to go before the king and make this huge request. But if she did that, she'd just be adopting this position of strength, this position of adequacy, this position of sufficiency. But instead, she chooses weakness. And when she goes before King Xerxes, she's willing to lay down all her wealth, all her power, and all her beauty. So what would it look like for you to choose weakness? It could mean a lot of things, but maybe for some of us, we've been on the fringes here at this church or other churches, and really we've just kind of been We've kind of been inoculated into this form of Christianity that I call cultural Christianity. And cultural Christianity is especially true here in the South. And really what it does is it takes our culture's obsession with power and impact and success and appearances, and then it just slaps Jesus on the side and calls it Christianity. But when you do that, you don't have any categories for suffering. You don't have categories for weakness. You don't have categories for weak people who can admit their faults. You don't have categories for those who want to verbalize their doubts. You don't have categories for laying down your reputation. So sure, there are times in your life where God makes you weak. He gives you a sickness. He gives something to you that just nags at you and makes you very aware that you're a limited person, but there are other times where we're called to choose this kind of weakness, and that's what Esther does here, Then you have Haman. Haman's allergic (laughs) to this form of leadership. He doesn't know anything about that, but what Haman and Esther have in common is that they're both leaders. They're both trying to make something happen. They're both people of influence. But as you can see, Haman, starting in verse 9 through the end of the chapter, he has. He approaches leadership differently. There's no hint of fasting for him. Esther goes to God to make her weak. Haman goes to his friends, and he goes to his wife, Zeresh, and he goes to them to get affirmation so that he could become strong. And then you see at the end of Esther 5, he builds these gallows, 50 cubits. 50 cubits is 75 feet high. 75 feet high? I mean, I, I don't know. It's probably three to four times taller than the ceiling of this building. All right? Have you ever seen a 75-foot gallows? I mean, it's not like Mordecai's 70 feet tall. So why would he have a 75-foot gallows? Well, it's supposed to tip you off. It's supposed to tip you off that he's obsessed with power, that he's obsessed with this intimidation, not just of Mordecai, but of the whole kingdom. And it tips you off to his heart condition that he's prideful. Where does this pride come from? Why does Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him cause him such rage? Well, if we go back to chapter 3, we said it was his idolatry. His idolatry of power is what made him this way. And that's one reason, it's true. But for Haman and for the rest of us, there's this confluence of three forces that play upon our hearts to make us prideful people. So sure, there's this idolatry of power, this this sinful nature that Haman has. And this sinful nature, even if you're a Christian and your sins are forgiven, your sinful nature still remains. It still causes you to live out of line with God's intentions for you. And so that's part of the reason Haman's prideful and part of the reason we're prideful. It's our sinful nature. But then you've got this other influence, this other force, and it's the force of the world. See, leaders being strong was an unquestioned assumption in Haman's day. Think about it King Xerxes, he was the model leader. All the leadership books were about King Xerxes, and he could make decisions unilaterally. He could He 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 could he could make the he he banished a queen with a snap of his fingers. He executed, he, he could execute someone for entering his presence without being invited. He could summon all the beautiful virgins in the kingdom to spend the night with him by the mere words of his mouth, and he did. He was that kind of powerful. So powerful leadership. This is all Haman's ever seen. And that's part of the reason that he's a prideful leader. But then there's this third force, this force of Satan. Now, it's easy to equate Satan with the paranormal. You know, that stuff going on out in Nevada this week, you know. That's what we think about with Satan, the paranormal. But what if the evidence of Satan's activities goes beyond Nevada? What if Satan's activities includes everything from garden variety pride all the way to full-blown pride that we see in Haman? See, the overwhelming majority of evil that we see in the world is just Satan throwing gas on idolatry. And when Satan's throwing gas on idolatry, it causes our passions to be incited towards wickedness, towards lying, towards lusts, and towards unbelief. That's what Satan's really up to in the world. So what do you do when you come upon a haman? What do you do when you have to engage someone who thinks they're doing the right thing when really they're just living into their sinful pride? They're really just going right along with the cultural narrative on power? What what do you do when you come with someone that Satan's having influence on in this kind of way? Well, you see it for what it is. It's spiritual warfare. See, th- this attack on you through this Haman, it's nothing personal. Because Ephesians 6 says that our battle is against, not against flesh and blood. And when we realize this, it really lowers the temperature of the conflict that we're having with this Haman. But what if you are the Haman. <laughs> Does it mean you need an exorcism? Well, it might. But in Acts chapter 8, we see this character named Simon the Magician. We looked at him a long time ago. And Simon the Magician, he was very powerful. He would do these tricks, attract people to him, and people loved him. Then you got the apostles coming along, and they start baptizing people in the Spirit. And Simon the Magician begins to see these apostles as people who have this special power. And he's trying to accumulate as much power as he can. So he goes to the apostles, and he says, hey, can I give you some money? I'd like to give you some money so that I can begin doing what you guys are doing and baptizing people in the Spirit. Well, what happens is, is that the apostles look at Simon the Magician, and they don't give him an exorcism, but they call him to repent. That's what happens. And see, when when we're living in repentance, it begins to shed off the power of Satan because Satan's tools don't work on us anymore. You, You no longer believe that you deserve anything when you're living in repentance. When you're living in repentance, you're not blind to your sin. You can repent when someone confronts you. You no longer need to be sufficient, adequate, and strong because Jesus has become your sufficiency, your strength, and your adequacy. But man, that's a hard corner to turn, isn't it? <laughs> the truth is we really don't want to repent from the desire to be strong. You want to be strong physically and lift heavy objects. You want to be strong morally so that you can do what's right. Right? and not do what's wrong. You want to be strong relationally so that you can dominate in groups. Because you know what's true. Strong people are the people that are included in the credits. But strong leaders and weak leaders both struggle. Weak leaders struggle because they're choosing to fight their own pride. They're they're struggling because they're fighting the world. They're, they're, They're struggling because they're fighting Satan himself. so it's a struggle. It's suffering. But then you've got strong leaders, and they're struggling too. And they don't realize that they're struggling against themselves. See, their pain is self-inflicted, and they usually mistake their struggle as against someone out there. And strong leaders become their own worst enemy. So you get to choose how you suffer. But oftentimes, suffering like Haman just sounds more appealing. So how do you get to a point where you want to suffer like Esther and be weak? I read a story this week about Madonna, of all people. Um, I was all over the place. Napoleon, Madonna, Jim Whitehurst, red hat. I mean, probably because UK and the Bengals both lost. That might be part of it. But I read this quote by Madonna. She's just reflecting back on her life. And it's crazy to think that Madonna was coming out with songs when I was a little kid, and she's still at it. Here's what she says She says, I have so many regrets, and I also have none. I wish I hadn't done a lot of things, but on the other hand, if I hadn't, I wouldn't be here. But then again, nobody works the way that I work. I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find my find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. That's what's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. End quote. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like you? It sounds like me. It sounds just like Haman. And when you choose a life of proving yourself like Haman and even like Madonna, there's this constant nagging that you're not enough. See, there's no amount of year and bonuses, no amount of applause, no amount of praise that can satisfy this nag. The only thing that can satisfy the nag is the strong, authoritative voice of God. Because it's God's voice is the one that can tell you that you're approved and you're favored. He's the one who can tell you that you can be a somebody in the eyes of a greater somebody. See, this is what happened for Esther. In 4.14, what Haman does when he challenges her is that he reminds her that she's a daughter and the son of her father's lineage. And when he does that, he's reminding her that she's one of God's chosen people, that she's the beloved daughter of the king and not King Xerxes. And so she's living in the midst of this power and this prestige. She's living in the midst of trauma and pain, being in the palace. And somehow she had forgotten it she had forgotten who she really was and now Mordecai is calling her back into a deeper belonging, a deeper identity, into a deeper security than anything the palace could offer her. And Jesus knew what this kind of security was like. This was his his incarnation. He, he, He heard the voice from heaven at his baptism that said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He was secure. Can you imagine never being insecure? Can you imagine never having that haunting voice that tempts you to question the validity of your existence? Well, this was Jesus. Jesus never knew a moment when he didn't enjoy the inner serenity of being God's beloved son. Until the cross. It was at the cross that he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, he had lost the security of being the son of God. In fact, he went from being the son of God to being the enemy of God. Instead of resting in his identity as the beloved, he now had become despised. Why? Why did he become despised? It's because he became our substitute. See, we're the enemies. We're the ones who roam the earth all of our days being insecure, wondering if we really matter. We're the ones who are always thinking if our jobs really matter, if they really add up to anything. We're always thinking, are we actually good parents? We're always thinking, does someone really care about me? And then we attempt to prove we matter and we become Haman. We buck up and we power up. But if we receive the security that's offered in Jesus because he's died for us, if we know that we really matter, if we know that Jesus really loves us, then we know that we don't want to prove anything. All we get to do is rest. We get to rest in the secure love of God. Who's our king? And we're his royal sons and daughters. What glorious news. The name Esther is mentioned 37 times in these 10 chapters. 37 times. 14 of those 37 times, the word queen is inserted before Esther. Queen Esther. 14 times. 13 of those 14 times come after chapter 5, verse 1. And one of the commentators that I read this week said that this was an intentional move on behalf of the author. What the author is trying to signal to you is that Esther only became queen when she was willing to suffer. So brothers and sisters, will you lay down your pride? Will you choose weakness? Will you lay down your ego? Because if you do, royalty awaits Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.